Get your cigars ready. It's third Saturday in October week. That means it's Alabama and Tennessee in a rivalry game that suddenly got interesting in light of what happened last year. The Vols breaking their long streak, busting out some old cigars, and getting to celebrate for the first time against Nick Saban at Alabama. Alabama will be hungry for revenge this year in Tuscaloosa. That game highlights our slate this week. Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer along with John Adams. In addition to Alabama, Tennessee, we're going to take a look around the conference at some coaches who are struggling and evaluate just how high the panic meter should be in those destinations. But John, let's start with Alabama, Tennessee. In many ways, it was the game of the year last year. College football is kind of funny that way, right? I mean, it's got a postseason. You have a national championship. uh, But oftentimes, the games that stand the test of time are those rivalry clashes that have thrilling finishes. That was exactly the case last year at Neyland Stadium. They won on a field goal that fluttered over the crossbar. And first win for Tennessee against Alabama since 2006. Well, now the Crimson Tide, they're eight and a half or nine and a half point favorites, depending on your sports book of choice. They ought to be hell bent for revenge, John. But we're seeing Alabama stay in the hunt for the college football playoff. They're still in the driver's seat in the West, but it's not always pretty, is it? I mean, they were. Uh, having a high-wire act against Arkansas in the fourth quarter on Saturday. What did you think of that one, and and um, how much, I guess, do you trust Alabama going forward? I was watching that game, and it looked as though Alabama had it in hand, was up 24-6. to And it's hard to shake the image of what Alabama football has been under Nick Saban. Once Alabama gets a, gets a game in, in firmly in its grasp, it's as though it just – tightens it tightens down on it even more uh but this alabama team doesn't do that and neither did last year's alabama team uh so do i trust alabama not really not saying i trust tennessee against alabama but uh no i've watched alabama just sort of muddle through a win over south florida of all teams 17 to 3 watched it uh fade against Texas in the fourth quarter. Uh, I just don't see this as a typical Alabama team. Maybe it's what's Alabama become, but it really, what it comes down to me is Alabama doesn't have the playmakers it so often has had during the Nick Saban dynasty. You don't see the playmakers at running back. You don't see the playmakers at wide receiver. Uh, Jalen Milrow is an inconsistent quarterback. Um, he's got some physical skills, but he's no Bryce Young. So it's hard to trust this team. Yeah, and, and with Milrow, I, I guess the disappointing thing if you're an Alabama fan was, you know, you mentioned the Texas and South Florida games, but I, I think if you're a glass half full for Alabama, you were hoping that the Texas A&M game was sort of a turning point moment for Jalen Milrow. He threw an interception in that game, but by and large, he played so well. Uh, He and that Alabama defensive line were responsible 
for Alabama emerging from College Station victorious. And, and you're thinking, okay, there's the turning point. And, I mean, he, he hit a number of deep shots against Arkansas. Everything looked okay in the first half. But then in the second half, you know, he and that offense struggled to salt it away. And, and so, you know, I think we're left with a feeling of Jalen Milrow is a better quarterback than he was in week one and week two. He's certainly the best thing going in, in the quarterback room at Alabama, but the product isn't finished. It may not get finished this year, and this might just have to be how Alabama wins going forward is with a combination of defense and doing just enough offensively um, you know, to emerge on the winning side, which interestingly is how Tennessee beat Texas A&M last year. And that's a surprising one, right? I mean, this is a Tennessee team with Josh Heupel that we'd come to associate with high-paced offense, all, all these points. You know, you think back to last year's 52-49 game, the duel between Hinn and Hooker and Bryce Young. That, that's the type of game we'd come to associate from Josh Heupel. And now this year, they're winning with defense. Their defensive line um, manhandled Texas A&M's offensive front in that game. Joe Milton, he's struggling. He's not playing like a typical hypo quarterback. And this is maybe not to the same extent as Alabama because Tennessee still has had some games against inferior opponents where it's piled up some points. But in a game against a a decent team in Texas A&M, it had to win with defense. So you know, in some ways, I see some similarities between these programs. You don't know exactly what to expect from the quarterback spot, uh, although I trust Jalen Milrow more than I do Joe Milton. Uh, you don't see the same level of playmakers at wide receiver as what we've seen from these teams in the past. And defensive line and, and defense overall has been responsible for at least one if not more key victories on, on both sides. So there are some similarities in between Alabama and Tennessee, I think. Yeah, you look at last year's 52-49 to 49 game. This game could be 26-24. I think if you can score 25 points in this game, you will probably win. It's a pretty, it's a pretty extreme turnabout in just one season with the same two coaches, the same two programs. Uh, I think there's a tendency, you, you talk about Jalen Milrow, and I was so impressed with the game he had against Texas A&M. With quarterbacks who are in, inconsistent, I, I think when they're at their best, when when we witness one of those performances, the the initial reaction is, oh, here it is. This was the breakthrough game. And now we're going to see this uh, steady incline throughout his career. So he's turned a corner, the lights come on, all those, all those cliches. In fact, no, he's probably still an inconsistent quarterback. That's who he is and that's who he will be. I've kind of made that determination about Joe Milton, Tennessee's quarterback. He's capable of making some big plays, certainly, as is Jalen Milrow. But you brought up the issue of trust. Uh, when we started the podcast, do I trust Alabama? I don't really trust either one of those quarterbacks. I, I Does Tennessee need a quarterback change, John? They they have Nico Iamaliava on the bench, the five-star freshman. According to some recruiting services, he was the number one recruit in the nation 
from this last class. We've barely seen him in, in a little bit of relief duty, but not much this year. And so you've got the six-year senior in Joe Milton. But when I look at Milton, he's making some mistakes that you would expect from an 18-year-old true freshman. And so on the one hand, I say, well, if the six-year senior is making freshman mistakes, why not go to the freshman? On the other hand, I think, well, I sure wouldn't want a true freshman debuting as a starter in Bryant-Denny Stadium uh, against a team that, as I said, ought to be out for revenge after such a rare uh, loss to, to Tennessee, at least in this this modern era. So I don't, I guess from my stance, I would not make the change from Milton to Nico now. But if Tennessee were to lose this game, you know, at that point, they're probably not getting to Atlanta. I'd be pretty tempted to make the change come November, although coaches are always so hesitant to make a quarterback change. Uh, coaches look at things from a uh, – coaches preach to players, go all out. If you make a mistake, have a short memory, You know, don't worry about it. Put that behind you and keep playing. They don't coach the way – they coach their they, they don't their decision making is different when it comes to them. They think about what can go wrong. And so Tennessee looks at a true freshman, regardless of how talented he might be, we don't really know. But they look at that uh, true freshman and say, oh my gosh, what if he drops the snap? What if he's got a deer in the headlights when we actually put him out there? Almost as if He's this really good athlete, but he's never played the game. So we have no idea what he might do. So I think there's a, there's no willingness to try that until, as you mentioned, a loss. If you lose to Alabama, I would certainly play him against Kentucky. If Joe Milton performs no better than he did at Texas A&M. Think how many players you could put out there who could do what Milton get a, did against uh, Texas A&M, 11 of 22 passing, 100 yards, made a couple of runs, not much, made a couple of boneheaded plays. Red uh, zone interception. A crucial red zone interception. A ball shouldn't have been thrown. Uh, maybe Josh Allen makes that throw, but but Joe Milton does it. So, I mean, how much worse could it have been? Tennessee won despite him. Perhaps it could win despite Nico, and I won't attempt to do what you did very eloquently, pronounce Nico's last name. I think I've got it in my head. I mastered Tua Tagovailoa, uh -huh. but Nico is still a stranger to me, so I'm you not just, ready. You got to say it real fast, John. Yamaliava. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> just pra practice off air, and you'll you'll be uh, okay. impressing okay. us all in yeah. future episodes. I guess I'm, I'm hesitant to try it just as a coach might be hesitant to try the freshman. But at some point, you have to say, and let's face it, I know this can't be a determining factor, but Nico's making a lot of money playing football, even though he's not playing. He's making a lot of money practicing football. He's got a great NIL deal. We all know that. We might not know the specifics, but we know he's making a lot of money. Another thing about Nico. He didn't just show up in August. He came to Knoxville in December of last year, practiced with the team for the bowl game, for the game against Clemson in the Orange Bowl, 
In fact, we were hearing from sources that this guy looks great. He's the real deal. That that was kind of the theme for the pre all those pre-bowl practices. So he's been here almost a year. I think he probably knows the plays. And that's a great point, John. I mean, this is, you know, in the old days, a freshman arrived on campus, what, beginning of August for two sure. days, right? And checks so in, it, checks into a dormitory. Yeah. Right. Carrying those cardboard boxes. And <laughs> we'd always have to go get the, we'd always send a photo photographer out there. I can still, in my mind's eye, see one of Peyton Manning moving uh-huh. some boxes into a. <laughs> right, that was the old way of doing things. The sure. freshman showed around, showed up August first, and two days began in a few days, right? But like you said, this is this is not that anymore. Nico has been part of this program for ten months now, so um, you know it's not like he ought to be still learning the ropes. He's a backup quarterback. He's he's been the backup quarterback since the spring. Uh, Tennessee said since the spring that they're going to prepare him to be QB one should anything happen. To Joe Milton, well, something has happened to Joe Milton, not to his health, but due to his performance. He's he's not performing up to the level that Tennessee needs, and it's not just him. Uh, he's suffered from poor pass protection at times. He's suffered even more, I think, from wide receivers who struggled with the drops and, and an ability to get open. And in that way, once again, I think we see some similarities between Alabama and and Tennessee. However, um, some of this is on Milton and. I don't think Tennessee will make a quarterback change if it were to lose on Saturday because I think a coach is still going to play it conservatively and say, hey, I can play Milton, go eight and four, nine and three, and and keep Nico behind the curtain going into next year. That's what I'll do. I, I, most coaches, 95% of coaches, that's what they would do. I think that's what Josh Heupel will do even if they lose to Alabama on Saturday, but uh, who knows? Maybe Milton will surprise us or or maybe Heupel, you know, in the aftermath of a loss would surprise us and make a change. What would Nick Saban do? Uh, I think he'd make a change. Say say what you will about Saban, old old school coach, you know, he, I'll, I'll, whatever you want to say about oh, Saban wanted to get back to bully ball this year. And, um, you know, he, they were doing all that passing last couple seasons, but that's not really how he wants to win. Saban, what he really doesn't want to do is lose. And <laughs> you lose a couple games with a quarterback, you better believe he's going to make a change. And he might he might make a change even if he's not losing games. Uh, you got I don't know why Saban made the change from Milrow after that Texas loss. I thought it was premature. But it, Saban almost is going to err on the side of making a change, I think. And then if it doesn't work, he'll go back to what he was doing before. And although I did not like the quarterback change for that USF game, I ultimately will give Saban credit for being more willing than others in his profession to make a change at that position. Well, uh, you 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 described uh, Saban as being old school. He re- really isn't old school. You really can't define him by an era. Much like Bear Bryant, these guys are amazingly successful and won so many national championships because they're willing to adapt and adjust. We've heard Nick Saban so many times complain about a new rules change, uh, wonder about is the NIL good for college college football or the transfer portal. He might bemoan those changes, and the first thing he does is start tra- figuring out, okay, how can I make these work to my advantage? As you said, what he wants to do is win games. 
and he's very open to trying it. Go back. Uh, he started Jalen Hurts as a true freshman at quarterback. He, in a national championship game, in the second half, he took Jalen Hurts out against Georgia and put Tua Tagovailoa in there, and Tua wins the game with a spectacular game-winning pass in overtime. That's what Nick Saban does. He coaches aggressively, and he's not afraid to make changes. And, uh, yeah, the changes don't always work out, but standing pat doesn't always work out either. Yeah, great point. And so I I do think – I don't know if Nick Saban coming into – I don't think Nick Saban has a lot of options. I think at quarterback, I think he realized, okay, I look, I try these other two guys, and I've seen enough to know this this uh, Milrow is still our best option. We are going to have to win with him. We don't know. We don't know what Nico can do at Tennessee. We just don't. Right. He didn't start against USF. There's not that that proof of concept that we we've, we've seen Ty Simpson, we've seen Tyler Buckner, and. There's no reason to think that Alabama's best quarterback is is lurking in the shadows. Um, I do understand Tennessee fans though who wonder if their best quarterback uh, might be, you know, sitting sitting on the bench. So, well, a final thought on this one, John, before we we leave it behind and head off in other directions. Um, big picture, we talk so much about future SEC scheduling and still hasn't been settled. We know that the the eight game SEC schedule remains intact for next season. Now this game is on the docket. It's it's been preserved at least through 2024, but then SEC scheduling is a mystery. The league has not uh, announced what it's going to do, whether an eight game or a nine game schedule for 2025 and beyond. We know that if it were to stay at an eight game schedule long term, this game would be in jeopardy at least as an annual rivalry because in an eight game schedule. Each team would have one rival that it plays annually. For Alabama, that would be Auburn. And for Tennessee, uh, that would presumably be Vanderbilt. In any case, it's not going to be Tennessee and Alabama. You've been someone in the past that says, you know, you're open to not playing some longstanding rivalries every year. Um, You know, you, you like the introduction of some new rivalries. We've seen that in this conference the whole bit. Um, but that game last year was an all-time game, really. I mean, that that's one that if ESPN Classic still existed, right? Well, I guess it was broadcast on CBS, but you get the point. That's the type of game you could you could flip on 20 years from now and you'd probably sit down and watch it. I don't know that that happens if it's not a rivalry game. You know, if Tennessee's just snapping a long losing streak against Arkansas or something, doesn't feel quite the same. So how much would you or would the conference miss this game, miss this series, if it goes from being played every year to twice every four years, which would be the uh, the alternative that we hear, you know, if, if the SEC were to keep the eight-game schedule long-term? Is that, a, is that something you would really miss? Is that something the conference would really miss or or not really? Yeah, I would miss it. I, I mean, I've I've been following SEC football since I was a kid, which was uh, many, many, many years ago. So, uh, though I never covered a General Neyland team. Uh, 
I I would miss it, but if you play twice in four years, it's not as though you're never playing each other and the rivalry is dead like Oklahoma and Nebraska. Uh, other rivalries develop uh, depending on who's good, who isn't, that sort of thing. So I've tried to adapt in my thinking to these kind of things and accept that change is inevitable. And we're seeing all kinds of changes in college football. And I say, okay, well, that's how it's going to be. Let's roll with it. We're suddenly not going to do away with the NIL. We're not doing away with the transfer portal. We have to live with that. And with scheduling, uh, I'll try to look at it in a positive light. I will miss the Tennessee-Alabama game. I would miss Tennessee, the Tennessee-Georgia game. These are They have a long history together. But I also remember when the Tennessee-Auburn rivalry was really good. Um, so, yeah, I would miss them. But I would try and look at it positively like, yeah, but now you're getting to play Oklahoma every couple of years. You're playing Texas. You're, you're playing all these different teams. Uh, I kind of like that, too. I think it's uh, – I mean, I mean, you can go so – you could go so long uh, if you had all these – maintain these rivalries and with a divisional setup, the SEC is getting away with that from that. But with a divisional setup – you could go forever without seeing a team play from another uh, another division. So I, I try to look, take a positive approach to that. But sometimes when I'm watching a game, I think, man, this game is so intense. And that's what rivalry games are like. I watch, I watch the Red River shootout, or do we call it the Red River showdown now? Still, still the shootout on SEC Unfiltered. It's still a shootout, and it is a shootout. But that's the best game I've seen this season, Oklahoma and Texas. I've seen more other great games, but that was the one. And part of it, it wasn't just that the game was so close and it had so many pivotal plays. It was the intensity. You can, It's palpable, that kind of intensity at those kind of games. And that's how it was with Tennessee and Alabama last year. And when a game ends with the goalposts being dumped in a river, <laughs> that, that's pretty special. It, that yeah. takes it to the next level. It's not yeah. just tearing down the goalposts. They tore down the goalposts, they marched him out of the stadium, <laughs> and they baptized him in the Tennessee River. Um, the, the pushback I would have, John, to the, well, you still play them twice every four years, is you don't know when that special game is going to happen. You know, what if last year would have been an off year? in the rivalry. You don't get that moment. Um, and so to me, that's why games like this need to be played every year. And you can, you can manage. I agree with you. I, I don't like this divisional structure where you go like seven years in between facing some opponents. So, I mean, the solution is still obvious for the sec. You get rid of divisions as they're doing, but you just go to the nine game conference schedule. So you can preserve more of the rivalries like Tennessee, Alabama, while still getting your variety and scheduling. It's a simple solution. You go from eight to nine. Um, that that would keep games like this, like Georgia-Auburn, like those other second-tier rivalries on tap every year. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to hide my feelings. Hopefully, that's what uh, the SEC eventually comes to. Let, let's uh, spring off in another direction, John, because I want to get to some other 
programs. This is the time of year where preseason optimism turns into midseason angst and frustration and fans taking to the message boards to type in all caps, fire everybody. You know, you're four and three, fire them all, fire them all, cut, stroke the check, get them out of here. So, but I'm, I'm curious, your panic meter or your, what should be fans frustration level with a handful of coaches. So let's keep it simple. Let's go one through 10. I'm not asking you necessarily how likely is it that the schools are going to fire these individuals in the next four days or something. This is more, how reasonable is it to be a totally frustrated with 10 being, yeah, absolutely. You should be typing fire everybody onto the message board (laughs) and one being, let's calm down for just a second here. Uh, So let's start with who else? Jimbo Fisher, Mr. Mediocrity, Mr. $77 million buyout, Mr. Uh, always underwhelms um, with uh, with oodles of talent, loses to Alabama, loses to Tennessee, lost on the road to Miami. Same story. The soundtrack won't play the next song. So one to 10, what should Texas A&M's fans reasonably be with Jimbo Fisher? Probably a 12. <laughs> I, I just, uh, watching that game, and I know it's, it's not a certainty when you're you're observing a coach on the sidelines, but Jimbo really looks disengaged to me. There, you well, mentioned why not? You know, they got to pay him seventy seven million I, <laughs> to go away. I I might be too. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, he's just being human. You mentioned angst. Well, I I don't see much angst with him. I, I don't feel as though. He's not sleeping because of what's going on with Texas A&M. Texas A&M was good enough to beat, not just beat Alabama, but beat Alabama and beat Tennessee the next week too, to win both those games. He lost one by six, one by seven. And I just didn't see him doing much to impact the game. How can you not do more to get the ball to Anaya Smith against Tennessee? He's one of the best playmakers in the conference, in the country. I mean, he can he can turn what looks like a nothing play into a touchdown. Uh, I, I just like he was just kind of going along with the flow, and lo and behold, he lost both games. I just if I a Texas A and M, I think Texas A and M fans are conditioned to this. Can you imagine Alabama fans watching those two games? If that had been Alabama or Georgia fans or Tennessee fans, or, or even Auburn with a six-year even- coach like like Jimbo is, uh, I mean that's the thing to keep remembering here is we're not talking about a guy in year one, year two, year three. Whoa. We're talking about a guy in year six who got a contract extension for no real logical reason two years ago, and I mean the, the only reason. The only reason this guy's still employed is he has a $77 million buyout. But as we've said before, that's the one school where, I mean, they are fundraising and revenue giant. If one school could say, yep, we'll, uh, we'll eat that $77 million buyout. Texas A&M would be the near, near the top of the list of those, of those type of schools that could do that. Yes, I agree. I mean, Texas A&M has everything it takes to win a national championship. 
facilities, recruiting base, stadium size, passionate fan base, all that good stuff, but it doesn't have the coach. And it never does, does it? <laughs> Not quite. I mean, it had good years under. It's had its moments. I mean, Jackie Sherrill was successful there. R.C. Slocum was successful there. But that that crowding season, the kind you get at LSU and Alabama or, uh, or Georgia or, or Auburn or Florida, those kind of seasons consistently elude Texas A&M. I'll move on to the next one, John. A closing thought on this. The last 27 seasons – 27 years. That accounts for Texas A&M's time in the Big 12 and the SEC. That 27-year span, they average seven and a half wins per year. That's basically what they've made Jimbo Fisher, one of the highest paid coaches in the country for, is to do what they've always done, be mediocre, go seven and five. Um, You got (laughs) to... When you've rewarded a coach to this extent, you expect more than to just you know, do what you've always done and, and, and go seven and five, uh, on to the next, John, uh, Shane Beamer, how quickly can a coach sprint from the penthouse to the outhouse, right? I mean, it was just last November, South Carolina was upsetting the Tennessee and Clemson going eight and five all seemed well, big season ahead was the hope in Columbia, South Carolina with Spencer Rattler. Well, uh, it's come unglued, the, the Gamecocks stink, and we heard from Beamer after their latest loss to Florida on Saturday. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he basically went on a long, whining a monologue in which he said, the coaches had great plays called, and the players screwed it up. Mm. It doesn't go over very well after, uh, after you sink to two and four. Uh, Beamer won 15 games, though, through his first two seasons, and... Uh, but it's, it's come come apart here in year three. So one through ten, what should the level of frustration be with Shane Beamer in Columbia, South Carolina? I would say probably an eight or nine. Pretty high. Let's okay, get, I didn't know if you'd go that high. Let's make it a nine. Um, a nine. All right. Yeah. Here, here's why. And again, we, this varies from fan base to fan base. Uh, South Carolina fans, through their history, which is not spectacular, have been very patient with coaches. The expectations are lower there than most places in the SEC. It's not a typical SEC fan base, even though it's been here for about 30 years now. Steve Spurrier, when he was coach there, actually chided the fans about, you're not upset about enough about losing. Can you, can you imagine <laughs> Shane Beamer saying that? I mean, uh, yeah, he would not say that. He'd blame the yeah. chain gang, but you, you think Will Muschamp thought about saying that? Uh, you need to bring a moving van to my house. Uh, <laughs> I, I just think uh, when I go back and I looked at that season last year, the the November to remember, so to speak, uh, beating Clemson and Tennessee, two top ten teams, then going toe to toe with Notre Dame in a high scoring game in a bowl. Uh, Spencer Rattler looked as good as any quarterback in the country. Just even there was all, that was almost a red flag because you wondered where that team had been in the first seven, eight, nine games. Why did it take that long for all of this to suddenly click? And you're seeing a talent, another red flag, top running back, Marshawn Lloyd transfers goes to Southern Cal where he's the lead running back in a 
a talented uh, group of running backs. Uh, Jordan Birch, South Carolina's best pass rusher, said, no, I think I'll go somewhere else. I'll go to Oregon. Uh, Jaheim Bell, a very versatile player, a tight end who lined up in the backfield and ran for 82 yards against Tennessee last season. Uh, no, I think I'll go to Florida State. Those are red flags. I mean, why couldn't South Carolina keep those players? Yeah, Beamer gets a lot of credit for plucking Rattler out of the portal. Uh, Beamer, former assistant coach at Oklahoma. And yeah, credit credit due, because where would this team be without Spencer Rattler? But what else? what else has happened in the portal? South Carolina, I think, has lost more than it's gained via transfers. And when you think about what I just said there, where would this team be without Spencer Rattler? Well, we're going to find out next year where it will be without Spencer Rattler. And I think it's going to be pretty ugly. And so, you know, Beamer's got pretty lofty buyout. And while we said Texas A&M maybe could make some, a big buyout disappear, Beamer's is nothing like that. I think it'd be like 18 million at the end of the season, but 18 million would be a pretty big number for South Carolina to stomach, especially for a guy that beat Tennessee and Clemson last year. So I'm not saying there's anything uh, on the horizon this fall, but when we look at next year, Spencer Rattler off that team, uh, I'm not real optimistic uh, about the uh, the future for Shane Beamer in, in South Carolina. How about another one, John? Sam Pittman. He was a he was a toast to college football two years ago. Took over a uh, Arkansas program that was Vanderbilt level bad. I mean, seriously, no no joke. Remember what Arkansas was under Chad Morris? Well, he won three games in his first year, pandemic season. Then year three went nine and four and like Shane Beamer to some degree, he's kind of become a, a victim of his early success. Last year, they regressed to seven and six. Now they're in the midst of a five game losing streak. They've, they've become sort of the king of the, the four point loss, the seven point loss had a close loss to, to Alabama on Saturday. They got a winning record against the spread. They got a losing record in reality, two and five uh, year four coach. Sam Sam Pittman, 1 through 10, what should the level of frustration be with him? Eight. Um, I, I think maybe the batters like, uh, like Sam Pittman, okay, still there. I, I wonder when a coach, it's not as though Arkansas is repeatedly being blown out. It's it's losing close games, as you mentioned it. It seemingly on, was on its way to blow out loss to Alabama, but it rallied, made a game of it, and had a chance to win the game at the end. But when you lose close games repeatedly, I think fans look at that as coaching. They, say, they look at it as, okay, we got enough players. We hang in there with Alabama. We hang in there with uh, different teams, more successful teams, but we can't quite – do it. Now, coaches say it the other way. We're almost there. We're just a play or two away. But I think fans look at it, that's probably coaching. And I think he was a really feel-good story because he ended, what was it like? A seemed like it was a 21-game SEC losing streak when he arrived there. Something – it was Vanderbilt-like. Exactly. And and he, so he turned it around and he made, made headway. Players seemed to play hard for him. I liked all that good stuff. But he's trending in the wrong direction. And he goes, well, he, he could go four and eight or something this year. 
Yeah, uh, I think four and eight, five and seven are, are in play. The schedule eases up here down the stretch. They got four out of their last five at home. But I still think it's a pretty narrow path to bowl eligibility. They're I do. five and seven looks pretty realistic, I think, for Arkansas. Yes, and and I think uh he's wasting a pretty good quarterback too. KJ Jefferson, uh I know you're a big fan of a big KJ fan, but he doesn't have quite enough help, but he's really making plays. When you have a quarterback that can just throw a defensive lineman on the ground and then uh, take off running and to break three or four tackles who also can make some throws for you. I, I think fans will look at that too. So, well, we might not have a quarterback like this next season. Mm-hmm. If we can't do more with KJ Jefferson, what will we do without him? So, yeah, I can see where the fan base there would be very antsy at this point. Yeah, and, and much like South Carolina, that would be maybe my long-term concern here with Sam Pittman and Shane Beamer is if if this is the product with Spencer Rattler and K.J. Jefferson, I don't anticipate either of those schools making a change. I guess Arkansas could this year, although Pittman has sort of a strange deal in his contract where the buyout becomes cheaper if his overall record from 2021 uh, through present date drops below 500. It's not there yet. Financially, it would probably make more sense for Arkansas to see what happens next year and then make a move on Pittman if it doesn't improve. Of course, we know in College Athletics, Inc., uh, financial wisdom is is sometimes in scarce supply. But uh, I think my gut right now is is Sam Pittman and, and Shane Beamer are both still in their chairs next year, but I'm thinking about those schools without Spencer Rattler and KJ Jefferson. Uh, I'm not sure I'm very optimistic about either. Uh, someone who maybe is building a at least a small hint of optimism, John, is where we go next. How about Billy Napier? We've been tough on him in this podcast in the past, I think deservingly so. Uh, they flopped against Utah in the opener. They got embarrassed on the road by Kentucky, but they also have a road win this past week against South Carolina. What an escape act by Graham Mertz and the Gators, and they beat Tennessee. They're sitting at 5-2. and two. The schedule stiffens from here, but Florida will probably slip in to a bowl game for the second straight year. Uh, not that that deserves much celebration, <laughs> but... Napier's recruiting well. He's sitting at five and two. I don't get the sense that Florida fans have fallen in love with him. We know Florida fans can turn on a dime. One through ten, what should the level of frustration be with Billy Napier? I would say an eight. Uh, Yes, he's recruiting well, but recruiting well doesn't mean as much as it used to because the transfer portal looms large now. He's doing, yeah, if he was at Arkansas and this was his record, that would be fine. If he were at South Carolina and that's his record, it would be fine. But he's not. He's at Florida, where which won national championships under Steve Spurrier, won one under him and won two under Urban Meyer. Let's keep in mind what happened to Dan Mullen there. He had a lot more success initially than, and I know you can talk about his, he didn't recruit well enough and he left the cupboard bare for, for Billy Napier, his successor, but Dan Mullen's a pretty good coach. 
and he had he beat Georgia. He won the SEC East, um, and he got fired. I think Billy Napier will be fired at the end of the 2024 season uh, because I look at next season's schedule and I see non-conference games against Miami, Florida State, and UCF. I see a conference schedule at Tennessee, Texas, LSU, uh, Georgia. I think he's going to have a losing record in his third season, and I think that gets you fired at Florida. Well, yeah. I, if he has a losing record in year three, that ought to get you fired at Florida. I, I've been in lockstep with you on most of your rankings. I probably wouldn't go as high on this one. Um, I feel like Florida's made something out of nothing out of this season. Now, maybe Navier deserves some blame for being positioned to have a nothing season, but <laughs> uh, Graham Mertz is playing much better than I ever expected he would. And I, I'm with you to a point on recruiting. However, as I, I look at Florida sitting there with the number three recruiting class in the nation, um, I guess for me that does buy me uh, a little bit of a lower number here when you combine it with the five and two record, a better record than these other guys we've talked about this year. Now, let's revisit this at, at the end of November and see where Florida lands, both uh, in the record column and, and in the recruiting rankings. But five and two plus a number three recruiting ranking, I, I probably wouldn't go quite that high. I'd, I think I'd probably be more in the five or six range with Napier, uh, although I'm, I'm with you on most of these other coaches. So uh, final thing, real quick, John, uh, don't want to go too deep on these guys because they're year one coaches, but would you go, would you go above a five in frustration with either year one coach Hugh Freeze at Auburn or Zach Arnett at Mississippi State? Uh, certainly not with Hugh Freeze. I mean, Auburn, Auburn fans are still celebrating the fact that Brian, Brian Harson isn't, isn't on its sidelines. Um, they did lose by 30 points to LSU. I know (laughs) that celebration may have ended Saturday. Well, I I know, but Hugh Freeze has a track record for success. He's won wherever he's been. I think he'll win at Auburn. Uh, LSU's offense can score that much on anybody, and Auburn doesn't have the the offensive weapons to exploit LSU's weaknesses in the secondary. So I, I thought that game could go that way. I didn't think it would be that bad. But, no, I don't think Auburn fans – I think they're still – remember, they're just a year removed from Brian Harson, and they were ready to fire him the week after he was hired. So – I think they're okay. I think he's okay. I think with Zach Arnett, um, I think the frustration may not be there yet, but it's kind of it's kind of moving up. I'm not sure he can win an SEC game. And yeah, the, it, Arnett's biggest problem may have been how high the bar was set by Dan Mullen and Mike Leach at Mississippi State. They they made winning there uh, look easier than it is. I think I'm not talking winning national championships, but posting, you know, eight, nine wins in a season, they made it look uh, very doable at Mississippi state. I think we, we know that it's, it's a little harder than they made it look. And that plus a school friendly contract, a very rare case where you can say the contract favors the school and understandably. So, you know, Arnett was a defensive coordinator, got promoted after the the death of Mike Leach. There was no reason to give him a massive contract, a massive buyout, but the, the contract favors the school. Um, 
wouldn't be hard for Mississippi State, you know, to to make a change quickly in his tenure. A couple of things against him. One, the AD who's currently in place, the relatively new AD, didn't hire him. Correct. So that's not it. That's not in his favor. It never is when somebody, when when your new boss didn't hire you. The other one, uh, as you look at that history that you bring up, the recent history, it's not. It's not what Mississippi State has been in the past and long ago past. It's what's happened recently. And you compare, it's it naturally you compare Dan Mullen, Mike Leach, both great offensive coaches. And now you bring in a defensive guy and the offense is struggling. Uh, you're making a big transition. And then you still got that thing hanging over your head. The coach does. Well, he's never been a head coach. Mm-hmm. Unlike with uh, Hugh Freeze, if he loses the rest of his games, you can say, well, he's won wherever he's been. He beat Nick Saban twice at Ole Miss. We know what he's capable of. With Zach Arnett, it's a blank slate. You don't know what he could be capable of. That's just the reality of it. All right, let's get into some picks, John. Uh, the plot thickens in our, our pick standings. I'm clinging to a half-game lead. I went 2-4 and four last week. You flipped it around and went 4-2 and two. for the year. I'm 17-21-1. You are 16-21-2. Uh, our race to 500 continues this week. We're going to pick a handful of SEC games, step outside of the conference for one, and then also have our lock of the week per usual, which last couple weeks for me has been my bust of the week. But let's start in the SEC. Let's start with Mississippi State. We were talking about Zach Arnett. This one looks like it might be a battle for uh, last place in the SEC West, although eh, Auburn should be in that conversation too now, come to think of it. Um, But Mississippi State at Arkansas. Arkansas, a seven-point favorite. I'm taking the Hogs. Arkansas, two and five on the record. Four and three against the spread. I've trusted them a couple weeks in a row to cover the spread. They got it done. I think they uh, I think they win this one. I think they win by more than a touchdown. And I think the temperature on Sam Pittman is going to come down just a little bit, just enough these final few weeks of the season that we see him into 2024. Yeah, this is a really tough one for me. That line is really tough. Uh, I don't think Arkansas is ready to give up um, despite its troubles. And it's finally coming home. First home game since I think it's September 16th, mid-September since it's been in Fayetteville. So I'll, I'll lean the same way you're leaning not don't feel great about it, but I'll take Arkansas. We talked at at length about uh, Tennessee, Alabama, John. So let's go ahead and make our pick there. Alabama nine and a half point favorite in Tuscaloosa. We said we don't trust either of these teams necessarily a, a ton. Um, who do you trust to cover the the spread here? I trust Tennessee. I think that's just too many points. Uh, You know, I could see that being a three to seven point game. One thing that really strikes me about the matchup is they both played Texas A&M last couple of weeks. 
Alabama couldn't run the ball on Texas A&M. Not at all. Tennessee rushed for 232 yards. Uh, I think Alabama's defensive front is similar to A&M's, both high quality. Tennessee really showed me something by being able to run the ball on Texas A&M, so I would take the points there. Yeah, I'm going to take the points, too. Nine and a half feels like a lot for this Alabama team, which is sort of um, identity. Their, their building is kind of gutted out and uh, celebrate uh, wins however you get them. So I think Alabama wins. I don't think they will win by the 10 points necessary to cover the spread, so I'll take the Vols. How about South Carolina at Missouri? Missouri, we, we threw out uh, Eli Drinkwitz as our uh, we reluctantly threw him out as our midseason coach of the year a week ago. Uh, he was sort of the, the best of a batch of not great candidates. Well, his candidacy improved uh, after uh, Missouri laid it on Kentucky uh, on Saturday. How about this, John? There's three teams in the SEC right now that have at least six wins. Now, by games kind of factor into that. Nonetheless, though, the three teams in that category, Georgia, Alabama, and Missouri holding company with Georgia and Alabama. How about that? Uh, South Carolina's reeling. There's not much about the Gamecocks that I like from what I've seen. Missouri's at home. I think they 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 win and they cover the six and a half. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Blake. I just, uh, Missouri was really impressive, impressive, I thought, last week again in Lexington. And I thought it would win that game, but it fell behind 14 to nothing really fast. Uh, hostile venue. Uh, just came, maintained its poise, uh, kept coming. Uh, its offense really is pretty good. And Brady Cook is really, he's really having a good season at quarterback. He can run. He's been accurate on his throws. Uh, the receiving core has been a little better than I thought. And, uh, South Carolina's pass defense is just dreadful. Graham Mertz can attest to that. So can a, lo- a long line of, SEC quarterback. So, yeah, I could see this being a double-digit game. I, I feel really good about that pick, which probably means uh, South Carolina win the game. Sure. Yeah, the <laughs> betting public also strongly favors Missouri to cover the spread in this one, which also tells you um, that uh, smart bettors would probably go the other direction. That's the way it usually goes. But um, how about Ole Miss-Auburn? John, we talked about Auburn a little bit. I haven't talked about this matchup much. Ole Miss, six-and-a-half-point favorite. Ole Miss quietly hanging around in the SEC West. Now, they'd need some help because they lost the head-to-head with Alabama. So it's it's probably a pipe dream that they're getting to Atlanta, particularly because they have Georgia uh, looming on, on the schedule. Uh, but they did beat LSU, six-and-a-half-point favorite at Auburn. Uh, Hugh Freeze has said that uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said he doesn't like this matchup. He said after losing to LSU that Auburn is not equipped to get in these high-scoring games against LSU or Ole Miss, and I feel like he was kind of telegraphing what might happen uh, on on Saturday. Are you believing, Hugh, that uh, Auburn is not not prepared to hang with a six-and-a-half-point favorite Ole Miss team? I don't usually believe in coaches, uh but in this case, I do think it's a bad matchup for Auburn. Hugh Freeze is talking about he wants to, might help his team to go to up tempo. Well, good luck with that because Ole Miss can play up tempo. It has the players and the playmakers. I don't think he does. The quarterback disparity is just enormous in this game. 
I know Auburn's a tough place to play. I know it. I know it played Georgia really tough there, but uh, I, I just don't think it. Had, I think it, we could see a continuation of the LSU game. Won't be as one-sided, but I think the same things that work for LSU against Auburn will also work for Ole Miss. And the incentive factor is really good here for Ole Miss. I mean, it's just been hanging in there. If LSU beats Alabama, all of a sudden it's in three-way tie. And, uh, yeah, still got to get past Georgia. But Ole Miss has a lot to play for uh, in this game, and I think it just has too much offense for uh, Auburn. Yeah, the thing about a bad offense considering to go up tempo is you got to get that first or second first down to really get that tempo working yeah. for you, right? Otherwise, it's just a warp speed, a three and out. Uh, we're going to step outside into the Big Ten to pick one before we get our lock of the week. So a uh, big game this week in terms of the college football playoff situation. Penn State, a four and a half point underdog at Ohio State. John, I've been talking about Penn State since last year. I, uh, I thought they were a really, really good 10-2 and two team last year that I didn't think deserved maybe as much credit, credit um, for as, as good as they were. Uh, I think they're really good again this year. I've got some concerns about Ohio State. I know it's on the road, but if you're going to give me Penn State and four and a half points, I will gladly take it. I'm taking Penn State. Yeah, I watched uh, Ohio State is very fortunate to be unbeaten. Uh, very easily could have lost in Notre Dame. Uh, this is not Ohio State from last season. I don't think it's quite as good, and I think Penn State's better. So I'll go with Penn State. And I wouldn't be shocked if Penn State won the game. I wouldn't either. Yeah. I I, I mean, Penn State, I know the schedule's been really weak to this point, but they're not just beating teams. They are just annihilating teams. Their they're, they're average uh, score differential here, Penn State averaging 44 points per game, opponents averaging eight yeah. points per game. Again, I know it's not been a tough schedule, but uh, they, they've just been destroying the competition, the way uh, Ohio State used to destroy bad teams. Uh, we got that in our memory. Uh, that's sort of what Penn State reminds me of this year. Lock of the week. Uh, I, I normally take favorites, John, to cover spreads. It's gone against me the last couple weeks. I'm taking an underdog this week. Um, don't ask me why, but I am I'm taking 12 and a half points and Northwestern. Uh. Give me those 12 and a half and Northwestern at Nebraska. Nebraska struggles oh. to score. Northwestern struggles with everything. Don't necessarily like Nebraska to, 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 to lose this game. I don't think Northwestern goes in and does the upset, but I mean, Nebraska's quarterback situation is pretty bleak. They average fewer than 20 points per game. So if they got to cover 12 and a half, even if it is Northwestern, even if it is at home, Give me Northwestern in those 12 and a half points. I'm, I'm just impressed that you would even take 20 seconds out of your day to look at that game. <laughs> well, Mark, I, was, I wanted to take an underdog run. this week, John, because I'd, I'd lost on the favorites a couple weeks in a row. So I thought, who's an underdog I, I like here? And uh, Nebraska, I know it's been a, such a struggle for them offensively. When I saw they had to cover 12 and a half, I'm like, ooh, there's maybe something there. I think we need to frame this a little differently. I think lock of the week is a misnomer. It sure it, is. It's anything but a lock. 
I mean, my my locks of the week are just getting destroyed. <laughs> they, they don't even come close to covering. No, uh, you had uh, Georgia covering against Vanderbilt last week. Didn't I work know, out. And, and one thing we neglected to mention, Brock Bowers' ankle injury. He's going to be out for a few weeks. Uh, he'll miss the cocktail party for Georgia against Florida in a couple weeks' time. So that's uh, something we'll dive into in uh, future installments here. Uh, out the door, John, you got a lock of the week for us, which, uh, as you said, will probably be a bust of the week. Yeah, I'm trying to t- decide between two t- games. And I'm going to take Florida State minus 13 and a half over Duke. Okay. They're all in on Florida State. They're hitting their stride. Eh. Okay. Got any rationale for that or just you believe in Florida I looked at State? all the games and I can, the other one I came up with was Clemson minus two and a half versus Miami, but kind of flipped a coin there, said I'd go with Florida State. It's a really good team. It's really rolling toward the college football playoff. And uh, Duke, I just <laughs> – I, I Duke is uh, so much better than I thought it would be. I mean, its defense is so good, but I just don't believe it can be that good. I, I just – you know, I, I go – maybe I go too much with image, but I'm just rambling here. Rambling is what you do when you're uncertain about things. And I'm certain of, uncertain about all my locks of the – Well, I'm certain we've uh, reached the end of the road here. Uh, Thanks for listening to SEC Football Unfiltered. We'll be back with you next week.